0: The story goes that the University of Michigan was founded thanks to a land gift from the people of the three fires, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Botawatomi. But the truth is much more complicated.
1: I think the story of a land-grant university is the story of the United States, and it's also the foundation of what the country values and how it values it and how it remembers its history and its relationship to the land.
0: Today, we go to an art exhibition dispelling colonial narratives and representing Native histories. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer.
1: I'm I'm Dripping Earth uh, Clan from the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara tribes. I'm also Lakota and European descent. I'm from North Dakota originally, but uh, I'm Missouri River people. Uh, Presently, I live in Glorieta, New Mexico, which is tewa Toa land, and I'm visiting the Great Lakes region from there.
0: Artist Chanupa Hanska Luger has been working on a multi-year collaboration with the University of Michigan Museum of Art to examine the stories of the university's founding. The culmination is a three-part exhibition called You're welcome. And you can't miss this exhibition. It starts before you even enter the museum's building. We went to UMA, where the exhibitions are on view, to talk to the artist himself. Take a listen. Uh, The University of Michigan, uh, an institute of higher learning, (laughs) you were educated outside of the land-grant university system. I was just wondering what thoughts uh, were on your mind as you approached this project at the U of M being mindful of the question that the curators were posing.
1: For me, the I think the story of a land-grant university is the story of the United States. It's entangled in it, and it's also the foundation of what the country values and how it values it and how it remembers uh, its history and its relationship to the land in general. Um, it was a unique opportunity for me to explore working at the university From my own kind of educational background, I went to school at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, and I only went as high as my undergrad. From that point, I had children, honestly. Every time I thought about going to grad school and continuing uh, the trajectory of a higher education, I had children instead. So I have two boys, and I decided that's enough, and I'm going to quit thinking about grad school so that I don't have any more children.
0: Two Boys is honestly plenty of grad school for anybody, including artists.
1: Uh, Agreed. Agreed.
0: The installation as a whole is called You're Welcome. And I just have to compliment you on the very excellent jumpsuit that you're wearing with the name of the exhibition across the back of it. It's rad.
1: Thank you. Yeah, You're Welcome is something that I've... um, You know, it's funny. Not going to grad school, you don't get access to academia the same way as you do if you do go to grad school and kind of figuring out how to navigate those spaces. It was a lot of hustle on my part to be a part of um, the academic experience, whether that's, uh, you know, major institutions or universities. Um, A lot of it was legwork that I had done uh, slowly and incrementally to get to the position that I'm at presently and what i found was there is an undertone of presumed gratitude when working with an institution that you're fortunate to be here and so the position that you have is one of thank you thank you you know i'm it's an honor to be in this place but my indigenous perspective and the way i was raised i'm like in the united states I don't think that form of gratitude is necessary considering what my people had had to go through in order for me to be here presently today. So I'm moving the narrative from thank you to you're welcome. You're welcome that any of us exist at all. And so creating that position, but not just for Native people, but for artists in general, working with with. uh Larger institutions, we need to begin to recognize that the structure of their system, the architecture of their buildings, and the way that they become a hub for the sharing of culture is irrelevant without living artists presently. That our primary function is to maintain culture and there to present it to a broader audience. And so changing the power dynamic between large institutions and the artists who are actually creating and generating culture needs to shift and create balance. And so this is a small gesture towards that by titling the entire exhibition, You're Welcome.
0: In saying you're welcome and invoking that idea of the gift, in this context, it also works as a callback to the founding of the U of M. In 1817, the, the Treaty of the Foot of the Rapids, which is also referred to as the Treaty of Fort Meigs, is commonly understood as the Ottawa, Chippewa, and having gifted land— to the powers that be in the United States, the federal government, with the understanding on the part of at least some of the tribe members that the, the land would be used for a university that could educate, educate their children. And the original college that was designated for the purpose ultimately fell apart, but subsequently the Michigan legislature went to purchase land by selling that so-called gifted land and purchased the land that we stand on right now as we're sitting here talking in Washtenaw County. In Michigan Um, it's a pretty circuitous route but can you tell us about how this word gift why why you felt that this word gift should be an important part of the face of the exhibition given all that history
1: the word gift when I first got the, the letter about the land grant and the notion of the three fires uh, creating this gift and generating a space for higher education with the assumption that their youth will be able to go to school here and all of that sort of stuff, I think the, the big thing that was different in that narrative is the, is the notion of wealth for two different paradigms. Wealth in the United States is a matter of how much you can acquire or accumulate Whereas from an indigenous perspective, wealth is not how much you had, but how much you could give. And so not losing the word gift as the university begins to reframe its narratives and its relationship around its relations with the tribes from the region, I thought it would be important that this word was put forward and focused on through an indigenous perspective where it generates the wealth of the people who provided this space for a university to exist. Thinking about the long-term kind of experience that the university has generated both with technological advancements, uh, uh, alumni sitting in positions of power, um, all of the the kind of like over time impact of the University of Michigan is anchored on that word and this notion. And so I thought it would be a great way to put that word forward to actually try to generate a notion of wealth to the people whose land were, were removed from the land in this, in this extension. Um, and so putting the word large on the architecture of the Alumni Memorial Hall, I thought would be a great way to answer a question that was first posed by the university and Monument Lab, which is, how do we remember
0: I like everyone else. Started to experience the exhibition with that one word uh, painted on the front of the hall. Um, how did you? Can you can you describe sort of what the what the word looks like, and how it's going to look in the days to come?
1: Yeah, at three o'clock in the morning, I came down to the to the museum, and on the four pillars of a Greco-Roman neoclassical architecture in the in. In America, in the United States, in North America, on Turtle Island, this Greco-Roman edifice exists, and I thought it would be important to use those four pillars to anchor the word "gift." Um, I wrote it in a white porcelain clay that comes from Georgia, so it's also material from this place. And when that clay dries on the surface of the building, it is stark, stark white. And that is the beginning of a, an idea that I thought about when we think, how do we remember? When I look at architecture from that era, it forces this kind of um, a story that this country likes to present, that it's been here for a long time. And the impulse to create Greco-Roman architecture, it infers that it has been here that long. And it hasn't. And in my mind, a lot of the museums that I interact with, a lot of federal buildings, this perpetuation of a deep time relationship to place is a part of the myth of this country. And so the architecture itself becomes the sculpture. To make it stand out in a way that can't be avoided is why I'm choosing the white clay. But it's also, there's something else that I've experienced, which is museums feel like white spaces. And that doesn't feel inviting to me um, or other people of color, you know, to, to enter into an institution with this notion of, of um, it not being sanctioned or designed for you. So in my mind, when I see Greco-Roman architecture, I assume it is Carrera marble from Italy. And it's not. It's actually stone from here, not Michigan, but Ohio, It's Ohio sandstone and it's not actually white. And so when I think about whiteness, I'm like, what does that even mean? I think of it as the color first. And so let's present the color on the building. Let's paint its surface white to obscure the word gift that I had written on the pillars. And then let's allow the weather to erode the whiteness off of the surface of the building. Because this is answering a question for me, which is when you see it as white and you watch it watch it erode and wash away, do you recognize that the building is no longer the color? And how does that change the way you relate to it psychologically by watching it shift and transform? And the involvement of the environment and the natural course of weather and rain and snow to partake in that erosion It's a very soft and slow way to recognize that everything is under entropy and it's all slowly falling apart. And even our stories that we create, when we present them as history, are really involved with myth and selection of what we want to remember and how we want to remember it. The United States oftentimes has amnesia when it addresses the problems that it's created in its past. And this is a way to kind of resurface the museum and allow the environment to slowly wash away the thin layer of whiteness that is perpetuated in our perception.
0: We need to take a break. When we come back, Chinoupa Hanska-Luger shares his process collaborating with the curators of You're Welcome, Ozi Uduma and Paul Farber. The exhibition that begins just on the outside as people are walking past can continue for those who come inside. You chose some works from the museum's collection, In dialogue with your own. Can you tell us a little bit about the pieces that you picked out that that caught your attention?
1: The exhibition that takes place inside of the museum is in a specific room in the museum that also addressed another question that we had is, you know, this has been a two-year long process to develop this whole piece. And there was a question that kept popping up, which is, where does the museum start? So, Does it start on the outside of the building? Is it the greens around the building? Structurally, everything from the skin of the museum in is the museum. And so the room that I chose to present my work is is two sides of it are glass. So the audience experiences the work from outside of the museum, and the room itself becomes a vitrine for the object. And the object is... A piece that i had built several years ago that's called this is not a snake and it's collected with two other objects which are the one who checks and the one who balances there's a tension between these two figures that are representative of monster slayers as well as uh, a large serpent but the serpent is made of detritus of extractive industry and The pieces that are exhibited within the serpent are pieces from Uma's collection that I thought were entangled in extraction uh, history of the United States, so they become meat for the beast. They become power for it to grow and to become stronger, and it's also what the museum has considered valuable enough to be a part of its collection. And so... Filling the serpent with these pieces kind of repositions them within another vitrine, a vitrine of the monsters that we have collectively fed and valued that are becoming out of control. The one who checks and the one who balances are figures um, that are from uh, a cultural context of Mandan stories, And I've kind of recontextualized them to a present and potentially future space. And so they are holding the serpent at bay, kind of slowing its progress. And I thought it would be important that the works that were selected actually are presented within the sculpture itself so that there are layers of encapsulation that takes place within a museum. So... The museum becomes a vitrine inside of the museum is a gallery, which is another vitrine inside of that gallery is pedestals with vitrine tops on them. So it's this perpetuation of a notion of preservation, which is highly valued, whereas maintenance is a lower tier uh, as far as um, what a museum wants to value. I want to recognize and have a a subtle conversation around the effect of preservation versus maintenance and maintenance involves taking care of something and it can change over time, but it's alive and it's in flux and there's room for that growth. Uh, Whereas if it's locked in time, it can only be that forever. And I don't think that there's anything real in the world that actually exists like that.
0: This is not a snake, and the one who checks and the one who balances. Like a lot of your work, uh, it is, is so super, super intentional in materials. You mentioned the fact that there's artifacts of the extractive industries, like oil drum barrels. And I, I want to say also ammunition ammunition cases in it.
1: There are ammunition cases. There are concertina wire. Yeah. There is um, ceramic components, RE, uh, RME, or Reels, meals ready to eat, MRIs.
0: MRIs, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Cans from from forgotten eras of military advancement. There, there are kind of like subtexts of mil- military paraphernalia in that because those become the front line of extractive industry.
0: Is it common for you to get a chance to... Sit with one of your earlier works and maybe think it over a second time and reinterpret it in this way.
1: It's. A, I think it's a unique opportunity. I have to. I have to keep generating new work in order to be excited about the career path that I've taken. But one thing that's really fun, and I think that's a, a unique opportunity, working here, is uh, working with Monument Lab. Paul Farber and, and Ozzy at the University of Michigan Museum of Art provided an opportunity to recontextualize that work in relationship to it being a preserved object in the vitrine of the building. And so it was kind of, it was a, kind of a fun way to re-examine that work and consider what other materials could go into feeding the snake. By and large, the materials that I've used for the original piece were my own. They were tires from my vehicles. They were concertina wire that I liberated from you know a, a college in Colorado, you know, that had a pretty great ROTC program, and I had come across this concertina wire and I figured if I have it, they don't. And so I took it and now it exists on this piece. But I carried it around for me for years. I think it's important to recognize your own involvement in the feeding of this creature to better understand its scale and its impact. And so now, representing that work, I can look at what the university has valued and stored and think about the energy that it takes to protect and care for those objects and how that also feeds the serpent.
0: There's a great deal in your work that has connection with the land. How do you see this installation as being connected to your sense of place in other works?
1: I think one thing that's really important to me is um, considering architecture and the, the... myth generating that's a part of American history. I think this is one thing that I keep kind of coming back to and exploring in my in my practice is we are plagued with a sort of disassociation and dislocation when it relates to um, what we've developed as a culture and the place we inhabit. And I think when you inform the built world to not be from this place, you are further disassociating with place. And I think that's one of the unique um, experiences and privileges that being indigenous to the land here, I carry with me every day, is that I have stories that are deep in time. They're old. There is geology that I can go to along the Missouri River and tell my children about that hold stories of mythical and profound events that have taken place. And I think when you experience the world through that filter and that lens, you begin to look at the land not as resource, but with reverence. And I think that that's something that, as a country, we need to reevaluate if we are going to sustain our population here, to be in right relationship with the land is to look at the land with reverence rather than resource.
0: Hanska Luger, thank you so much for talking to us today. The show, you're welcome, is going to be up at UMA through February of next year. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Baer. If you're looking for more listens, find full stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. We also hope you're listening to our limited series podcast, Dough Dynasty. Episode two drops tomorrow. The whole series is about the story of Michigan's pizza empires. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Cabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Olivia Meradian. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feeds tomorrow. Bye-bye.